I think it's interesting how some of the biggest, most pivotal events in world history center on a crossing of a body of water. When Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, it totally changed the course of human history. All the achievements of the Roman Empire, its, its vast reach, its cultural impact all the way to today can be traced back to that one brazen river crossing. Now, the Rubicon was just a humble river that functioned as a border between ancient Gaul and Rome. But the crossing was so significant because Caesar was knowingly violating Roman law. A provincial governor in those days leading troops into Rome was considered to be a declaration of war. And so we have Caesar, the governor of Gaul, leading the entire 13th legion across the Rubicon, instigating a civil war that he decidedly won. And he became the first emperor of the Roman Empire, securing Rome's prominence in world history and its lasting impact on Western civilization as we know it. My daughter is learning Latin this year in school because Caesar crossed the Rubicon. We could also make the same argument about Washington crossing the Delaware River on his way to, uh, to win the Battle of Trenton. We're not speaking British English today because Washington crossed the Delaware. Well, friends, this morning, we're going to look at another famous crossing of a body of water that I would argue has changed the course of human history. I would argue that Israel's crossing of the Red Sea is one of those pivotal moments in world history because not only did it mark the birth of Israel as a nation state whose, by the way, existence, very existence impacts the current events that we read about in the headlines today, but also that crossing of the Red Sea has a reach that extends well beyond just our present age and all the way into eternity. The crossing of the Red Sea is a paradigm for biblical salvation. That means it sets the stage for subsequent acts of salvation in the Old and in the New Testament. It offers for us the necessary categories for understanding and appreciating what God continues to do time and time again, rescuing an undeserving people by the might of his strong hand, fighting for a people who keep grumbling and fighting against him saving a people who are too helpless and lost to save themselves. And so if you're a student of history, if you want to understand the way the world is today, if you want to know where history is taking us beyond just this age and into the next, then you need to be well familiar with this particular pivotal moment in history. If you've learned about Caesar and the Rubicon, You've learned about Washington and the Delaware, but if you've never really studied Moses and the Red Sea, then there is a huge hole in your understanding of world history. You've overlooked a significant culture-shaping, eternity-altering event. And so this morning, I want to fill that hole for you. We're going to look uh, actually at Exodus start, uh, uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 17, and then we're going to cover the entire chapter 14. And as I just mentioned, this one event is a paradigm of biblical salvation. And so as we go through the text, what I want to do this morning is to show you four observations regarding the way God saves. 
four observations of the Lord's salvation. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline listing the four things. First, we're going to see the Lord, that the Lord saves by leading us to the end of our rope. Second, the Lord saves in a way that humbles his own people. Third, the Lord saves in a way that vindicates his own glory. And fourth, the Lord saves by means of a greater exodus. So the first observation I want to make is how the Lord saves by leading us to the end of our rope. In other words, very often, God does not come running at the first sign of trouble. He doesn't act like a helicopter parent hovering over his kids, swooping in to the rescue at the slightest scrape or bruise of a knee. Many times, God will patiently wait and let us experience pain. Or, or like he did for the Israelites, he might even lead us into a difficult situation so that we get to the end of our rope. We hit rock bottom, and there's really nowhere else to look but up. So this is what we see the Lord doing, if you look with me, in chapter 13, verse 17. Let me read verses 17 to 18 for you. And the Lord says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm reading the wrong. I'm going to have chapter 13, uh, 14. Back to thir- 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the, by way of the land of the Philistines, although it, that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And so what we're told here is that as the Lord led his people out of Egypt, he did not take them along the most obvious path. The well-established coastal road heading northeast from Egypt into Canaan. It was an ancient trade route known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And it was the shortest and most direct path to the promised land. But he didn't take them that way. Instead, he, let, he leads them, as it says, by way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. He, they go south. Now, just as an aside here, I, I do realize that there is a whole debate as to which body of water they actually cross, because literally it says that he led them towards the Sea of Reeds. Uh, English translations typically say the Red Sea, because that's still the majority view, that they had crossed the northwestern branch of the Red Sea, uh, commonly known today as the Gulf of Suez. I, I think there is biblical evidence uh, pointing towards that theory. But, you know, that's really not the main point. Because the main point is that the way the Lord was leading them didn't make a whole lot of sense strategically. Now, God does give a reason for this move in verse 17. If you look there, he says he doesn't want them to lose heart and to change their minds when they run into the mighty Philistine nation. And so he leads them the long way. They head south by way of the wilderness. You know, you, can also, you could argue that this path was really leading them into a death trap. From the standpoint of military strategy, this is a very bad move. Israel is going to be shut in by the sea. They're going to be sitting ducks. Pharaoh recognizes this. The Israelites recognize this. 
And friends, the thing is, the Lord also recognizes this. He planned this. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 3. Here the Lord tells Moses exactly what Pharaoh is going to think and what he's going to do. So chapter 14, verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Do you see what this means? This means that the Lord knew that going towards the Red Sea was a strategically bad move, and he knew that Pharaoh would catch this so-called mistake, and he would pursue them. He knew that his people would be trapped, hemmed in by the sea, utterly helpless. Because this is the way God saves. It's paradigmatic of the way in which he saves. His way of salvation leads people towards a test of faith. You see, if he led them by way of the sea, and if they were confronted by the Philistines, well, yeah, it's going to be tough, but at least they can put up a fight. At least there was something that they could do, and there was a chance that they might come out on top. But by doing this, by leading them into the wilderness, hemming them in by the wilderness and the Red Sea, God left his people without options. There is nothing they can do. They are sitting ducks. Their only recourse is to trust God to come through for them. That's how the Lord saves He leads you down a path that's hard. He leads you through a gate that's narrow. In fact, that gate is so narrow that in order to get through, you are forced to strip away all the things that you rely upon in life. And so by the end of the path, you are essentially stripped bare. You are standing there naked like a helpless babe, and all you can do is lift up your hands and cry out for help, trusting that your heavenly Father is going to come to the rescue. That's the way in which the Israelites were led. They were led to the end of their rope. They were led into a situation where they had no other options, no other recourse, but to throw up their hands and to cry out to God for help. And friends, it's really no different in our case. Perhaps you feel like the Lord is leading you down a hard path right now, along a way that doesn't really make much sense. You feel hemmed in. You feel like you're being stripped of all the things that you typically rely on. Maybe, maybe it's your health that has been stripped away from, from you and you can't rely on your natural strength anymore. Maybe certain relationships have been taken away and you can't rely on those people anymore. Maybe it's something related to your career or to your studies. Something has been taken away. Whatever it is, you're at the end of your rope. You don't know what else to do. You don't know who else to turn to. You're out of options. Well, friend, I I hope you're starting to see that you're in the exact same situation as the Israelites standing there on the west bank of the Red Sea. They look one way and they see a raging sea. They look the other and they see a raging army coming to destroy them. So all they can do now is to look up, to look up and, and to just trust in God to come through for them. And really, that's all you can do too. 
God has led you along this particular way by design. I know the way is hard and the gate is narrow, but friend, you can be sure that it leads to life. Right now, all you can do is to look up, is to trust God to come through for you. That's our first point. Our first point is that, that, that along the way of salvation, God has a design. He has reasons to lead us to the end of our rope, to a state of helplessness. He wants us to finally look up and rely on him, to put our trust in him alone. But before we can do that, we need to be humbled. This is our second observation, that the Lord saves in a way that humbles his own people. I see in a number of places in our text, God trying to humble Israel, especially by reminding them that the salvation that he will accomplish for them is totally unmerited. They have not done anything to deserve deliverance. They have not proven themselves worthy of rescue. In fact, they've actually done the exact opposite. And yet, and yet, though they are so undeserving, we are about to witness the greatest Old Testament display of God's sovereign grace in delivering an undeserving people. We see this point emphasized strongly in chapter 13. Go back to chapter 13, verse 19. There we're told that Moses took the bones of Joseph with them uh, during this exodus. The book of Genesis ends with the story of Joseph and how the Lord led him to the end of his rope in Egypt along a way that made no sense to him at the time. But in time, it was revealed that Joseph, being in Egypt, was a means to rescue the descendants of Abraham from extinction during a great famine. So by Genesis chapter 50, specifically in verses 24 to 25, Joseph has the sons of Israel solemnly swear to bring his bones out and to bury them in the promised land on that future day when the Lord visits and graciously delivers his people out of Egypt. And so the point is that here in our text, deliverance is a sure thing, but not due to the faithfulness of the Israelites, but due to the faithfulness of God to the promises that he had made. He promised to Abraham that, his, that this land in Canaan is going to be your land. It's going to be for you and for your descendants. That's why it's not called the reward land, right? It's not called the deserved land. It's called the promised land. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, Moses reminds the Israelites that they weren't rescued and brought back into the promised land because they're such a great people. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people's but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has therefore brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so in other words, the Exodus happened not because of anything owing to God's people, but because of God's love and God's faithfulness to keep his promises to their ancestors. And if we just keep reading 
on in, in our text, we, we see just how des- undeserving the people are. Just look with me in chapter 14, verse 10. The Israelites, they see the Egyptian army way off in the distance, marching towards them, and they fear greatly, and they start grumbling. They start grumbling towards Moses. They say in verse 11, Is it not because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I mean, just listen to that. They have absolutely no confidence that God is going to come through for them. They are utterly convinced that they are about to die right now. And they wish the Lord and his servant Moses had just left them alone to serve the Egyptians. It would have been better that way, they say. So these people clearly are not great examples of faith. Clearly, God is not rewarding their faithfulness. He's not responding to their faith. No, he's responding in spite of their lack of faith. They're about to totally surrender. Only the Lord is ready to fight. But isn't that the point? When the Lord saves, he's going to do it all by himself. He's not asking them to help in this fight with Egypt. He's not asking them to gird up their loins and get into the fight. No, he tells them to stand there and watch and just be silent. Look look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, you might think, hey, well, that's pretty easy. You just have to stand there and watch? Oh, man, that's super easy. Well, actually, it's not. It's actually very hard to stand still in battle Your instinct is to flee or to fight. To stand still might be one of the most difficult things to do. And it's the most humbling of things to do. To be told, you just stand there, stop talking, and just watch, that's humbling. That's a shot at our pride. You know, a lot of us guys, once we become homeowners, we... Start doing it yourself, right? You know, we, 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 we don't call a plumber. We don't call an electrician. You know, we've got YouTube. That's all you need. And, and, and I'm going to do it myself now. But then, of course, we, you know, we make a mess of things, and, and it's our wives that have the good sense to call an actual plumber. And as that professional is, is getting his hands dirty, we're just kind of hovering over him, trying to talk a big game. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I tried to do that, but for some reason it didn't work. I don't really know what's going on. And it, again, it's up to our wives to have the good sense to tell us, just stand there, stop talking, and watch. You have only to be silent. That's humbling. But that's the way of the Lord. That's how he saves in a way 
that doesn't make much of you, but rather it exposes you. It exposes your weakness, your helplessness, your inability to save yourself. God is going to do all the work. You have only to be silent. That's the good news, really, of Christianity. You cannot save yourself by anything you do. You are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man can boast. Now, some are going to say that that kind of salvation, salvation by grace, sounds too easy, it's too good to be true, but it's not easy to stand still, be silent, and watch God do all the work of salvation. Because swallowing your pride Admitting that you're just like a helpless babe is not an easy thing to do. But friend, until you do it, you cannot be saved. So the Lord saves us by leading us to the end of our rope, to the point of desperation and to a place of humiliation in order to expose our weakness and to display his great strength. This leads to our third observation regarding the way God saves. The Lord saves in a way that vindicates his own glory. We have seen this theme time and time again in Exodus. God does what he does so that you shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the great I am. His name, his glory is of great concern to him. Because up to this point, You have to understand that the people of God have been subjugated for over 400 years under the might of the Egyptian empire. So that means that no one in those days would have thought much about the God of Israel. Everyone would have assumed that the gods of Egypt were stronger. They were more sovereign. Clearly so. It's been over 400 years. Up to this point, people assume that the God of Israel had either abandoned his people or he's just too weak to rescue them. Up to this point, God's name has meant very little. It's really not until plagues began did his name strike fear in anyone. His glory was disregarded and demeaned. But now as he works out his great salvation, his glory is vindicated. Just listen to the Lord In chapter 14, verse 4, this is the Lord saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. He says something very similar if you look in verses 17 to 18. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. I really feel like the Lord, in a sense, is just toying with Pharaoh. He leads Israel into a vulnerable, vulnerable position, hemmed in by the sea, knowing what it's going to look like to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to think that he has the Israelites right where he wants them, and he's going to pursue with abandon. And, and, and let's, not, let's not ignore the fact that three times in our passage, it says God 
hardened the heart of Pharaoh, or he hardened the hearts of the Egyptians as a whole. And so there is a clear emphasis here in chapter 14 that God is sovereignly ordaining these events. He's even ordaining the reactions of his enemies. God is hardening their hearts. But as we've already seen in other passages in Exodus, they do stress the other side, the, the human agent's responsibility in hardening his own heart. And so all of Pharaoh's decisions, we've already seen, are free decisions in that he freely chose to do whatever he wanted to do, but all of his free decisions were all pieces of God's overall sovereign plan. Like a master chess player, God was essentially forcing his opponent to move himself into checkmate. From the start of the game, God knew every move. God knew that he was going to win. He knew that he was going to get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. So God ordained and orchestrated every move that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would freely move themselves into checkmate. Like Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. That just goes to show how powerful God is, how glorious God is. The Lord is a master chess player, and everyone else is just playing checkers. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar, all the mightiest kings in the Bible, all in human history, we're all just playing checkers. It's God who knows what he's doing. That's the way God saves. He exalts his sovereign grace by setting apart an undeserving people, saving them by showing them mercy. And then he sets apart another undeserving people, judging them by showing them justice. You have to understand the Israelites and the Egyptians are sinners alike. They all deserved to be drowned in the Red Sea. But the Lord, in his sovereign freedom, put the pillar of cloud between the two camps, and then he called Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea. And verses 21 to 22 say, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Friends, that that wall of water on the right and on the left of the Israelites was not just held up by a strong east wind. It's clear here that it was held up by the grace of God. It was a hand of grace holding up those walls of water. And after the Israelites made it safely through those walls of water, they were released by the justice of God overwhelming all of the Egyptians. And then read with me in in verses 30 to 31. Verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Notice with me the order here. Notice how God didn't wait for Israel to have faith and trust in him before he would come and deliver them. 
if he had waited for them to have faith first, they would have never been saved. They would have died right there on the west bank of the Red Sea. This is where God's glory shines. He didn't wait. He took initiative. Look at verse 31. First, the people, they saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And then, after they saw their salvation, then they feared and believed. This is the way God saves. He takes the initiative. He saves us when we cannot save ourselves. And when our eyes are open to see, then we trust and worship him. That's the order. When God saves in that order, in that way, it demonstrates a sovereign freedom of his grace. He is not beholden to anyone. He doesn't belong to any one nation. And so he gets to dispense his grace and his justice as he sees fit. That, my friends, is what sets him apart as holy and as glorious. If anyone in Egypt or Israel questioned his glory before, now there was no doubt that Yahweh is God. He is the God of all creation. He is the great Redeemer. He is the great I Am. Every Israelite, every Egyptian now knows this to be true. But what about us? What about us today? Do we recognize the greatness and glory of the Lord God this, my friends, is where we have to bring it home. What does the Exodus mean to us? And I know this is where preachers typically start asking their listeners to think about the pharaohs and the Red Seas and their lives. Who or what has you feeling trapped? Who or what has hemmed you in? Do you trust God to part the waters in your life? Will you, by faith, walk out into the sea? I know that's how most sermons on the crossing of the Red Sea will end, but I think those are the wrong questions to be asking. Let me try to explain by explaining our last observation, that the Lord saves by means of a greater exodus. The point with this last point is that it's not really helpful to speak of your own exodus experience. When I said earlier that the Exodus is a paradigm of biblical salvation, I did not mean that you should apply it as a paradigm for how you are to handle your own troubles and hardships in life. I don't think it helps to think in terms of your own Exodus experience or your personal Red Seas in your life. It's dangerous, dangerous actually, to apply this passage that way as a way of giving you hope that if you just believe those waters are going to part and in whatever, whatever your difficulty you're facing, you're going to get through it. Because we have no idea if God is actually going to part the waters that are before you. It's well within his rights to actually let those troubles overwhelm you. It wouldn't be the first time he let the waters overtake someone that he loves. And so it would be cruel to tell a Christian today that no matter what obstacles you face, that God will always part the waters if you believe hard enough. It's simply not true. When I say that the Exodus is a paradigm of salvation, what I mean is that this pivotal event in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament ultimately sets the stage 
for a greater exodus that takes place in the New Testament. Jesus is actually the one who tells us that Exodus and the other books of Moses, along with the Psalms and the prophets, they all speak of him. They all point to him. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he is actually speaking to Moses himself, talking about his own Exodus. It is legitimate for Jesus alone to speak about his own Exodus experience because everything that took place in our passage today was setting the stage for his Exodus, his departure. Just like the way of the wilderness, the path to Calvary seems like a strategically bad move. And just like Pharaoh with his hard heart, I'm sure Satan probably thought he caught God in a mistake and now he pursued with abandon. But the cross was no mistake. It's actually the way God saves. And he led his son to the end of his rope. Jesus was led to the waters of judgment. And there he humbled himself. And there he vindicated his father's glory. He passed through the walls of death and came out on the other side victorious in resurrection life. The whole point is that the exodus at the Red Sea is pointing to the exodus at Calvary, where deliverance was accomplished for us on an infinitely greater scale. And you and I, we share in that deliverance, in that story of deliverance, not by imitation, not by going through our own exodus experience, but we, are, we share in that by identification, by identifying ourselves with Christ and his exodus. There's this place in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where the Apostle Paul draws this very connection between the exodus and what Jesus has accomplished and as well with Christian baptism. It's an interesting passage of how he brings these themes together. And it, you know, he says, just like the Exodus, just like the Exodus, baptism is about a new start that comes about through passing through water. It's about leaving behind a life of bondage to sin. And it's because in Christian baptism, we identify ourselves so closely with Christ. We were buried with Christ in baptism, raised with him to newness of life. And that's why, that's why when we as Christians face hardship in life, we shouldn't be thinking to ourselves, well, I must be going through an exodus experience. This must be my Red Sea moment right now. I'm looking forward to those waters parting. No, if you're a baptized believer, then you've already had your exodus experience. You experience the exodus in Christ, on his cross, in his tomb, through his resurrection. You were included within those saving events. And so that means that right now you have already made it to the other side. You are, if you are a Christian in Christ, you are on the east bank of the Red Sea. So I don't know 
what the outcome will be of that present hardship you're dealing with right now. I don't know if God is going to part the waters of your present troubles, but if you are in Christ, then I do know with certainty that you are already safe and secure on the right side of the sea. All that remains for you to do is to do what the Israelites did. You now fear the Lord and believe. Have faith as you follow him through the wilderness that we call life. Father, thank you in the way that you act with initiative in saving us before we could save ourselves and saving us before we could demonstrate any worthiness to be saved. We were actually unworthy, undeserving. We were helpless and lost, and you came in and rescued us. And through Christ and what he accomplished, we are already on the other side. We now live in freedom. We live in victory because we live by faith in the Savior who loved us and died for us. In his name we pray, amen.